Well, good morning, men and women of God. It is November 6, 2022. And it is the great joy of our lives to serve side by side with a body like you that is not only willing to dream big, but pray and physically labor toward the end of accomplishing the mission of God. We are one arm attached to the whole body of Christ. We are a body made up of men and women who are not only willing to die for Christ, but to die for him daily. You know, a lot of people, people call us many things. It's true. Some call us militant. Amen. Yes, amen. Why do they call us militant? Because we're so serious about this way of life. So serious. And we want to give our retort to that by saying to everyone, yes, we are militant. In fact, we are soldiers of Jesus Christ. We are sons who will fight for our Father's kingdom, and it is our joy to do so at ever-increasing cost to our own lives. Saints, do we have soldiers of Jesus Christ in this house? Listen, we intend to have a good time with you today. So right from the get-go, we want your response. We want your participation. Are you soldiers of Jesus Christ? Saints, we want to say with all sincerity this morning, we are proud of you. We're not asking that question as if we don't know the answer. We watched your lives and we know you are soldiers of Jesus Christ. We've seen this body, the way that you continued to fight the good fight of faith. That's not just a bumper sticker for you or a neat little pillow. You know what it is to contend for the faith and you continue to do so. Saints, you are a remarkable body, even a special body. You're special because you are like Christ, dying to see your father's work completed. We want to let you know in advance that the title of today's message, it's called Operation Sledgehammer. Sledgehammer. Yeah, it's going to be that kind of day. We want to begin by jumping straight into the Newer Testament Ketuvim with you. We will begin in a letter that was written to one of the most war-torn fronts of the Christian faith. The place where a Jewish rabbi with a few disciples and team members took on the pagan world at large and won. We're speaking of Ephesus, of course. Picking up in Ephesians chapter 2. Turn with us to Ephesians chapter 2. And we're going to begin in verse 13, if that's all right with Paul Rosales since he led us there in our opening. Yep. Ephesians 2 in verse 13 says this, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Can I get a hallelujah in this house today? Hallelujah! For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Praise to the living God this Come morning. On. This verse is talking about us. Those who were once way, way, way far off, but who are no longer there. We have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Come on. Hey, look, if, if, if Pastor Jude is going to get off stage on his opening remarks, it's going to be one of those days. Is anybody excited and pleased the fact that you were once far off and you've been made near? Come on. Well, let us know about it. Through the flesh of Christ, we've become one flesh in the body of Christ. That wall of hostility has been broken down. 
We want to remind you something that took place on the very first evening of our One Association Conference. There was a special prophecy that we're going to read to you now to remind you of the importance of what God has said. And it's also been testified through words of prophecy in our midst today. The prophecy said this, See, I have stretched forth my hand, for you are my hand, and have closely knit you together. But I shall knit you together in a way that there shall not be one division among you. Where at the stretching forth of my hand there is power. And at my right hand no enemy shall prevail. Amen. I'm stretching forth my hand and I will do miraculous things among you. I tell you this, my people, as you kneel and as you stand with your arms raised. Let everything that separates you from the brotherhood of believers fall to the ground. Stand up to your feet in the high calling that you have in fact received. Who in here believes that they have a high calling from the living God? Hallelujah. Well, show me your faith by standing to your feet and raising up your hands. What a call we have in that we've been brought near to it. Somebody say amen. Amen. What a body we have been brought near to here in this church and association. Come on. What a mission we have been brought near to to participate in as the body of Christ. Come on. Amen. The Jewish rabbi continues pinning words that will give us encouragement. But before we get there, do you guys wholeheartedly see and believe the realities that God has called you to participate in his endeavors, in his mission, to be his army, his force on earth as it is in heaven? Do you accept that challenge? Do you accept that call? Do you accept that glory? You may now sit down. Oh, this is better than a quad espresso from Starbucks. So get your going. All right, verse 15. Let's hear what our Jewish rabbi has to say. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man, in place of the two. So making peace. It might reconcile us both to God in one body. Everyone say one body. One, one body. body. Through the cross. Thereby killing the hostility. This is what we have built. Seeing all believers come into one body. Amen. A unified body. And we are building across international lines, yeah. extending well beyond our boundaries and into the destinations that God has foreordained. You have been brought near to the body of Christ, not the bodies, not plural. We are not bodies. We are one body in Christ. Come on, everybody say it again so we get it. Say one body. One, one body. body. Well, in light of that particular phrase, one body, we have some misguided, if not wickedly deceived pundits out there. CNN is wrong. <laughs> Sleepy Joe is wrong. We are not divided. Not in Christ. There is no division within Christ. It is one body. We are united as one. 
Oh, come on, church. The world at large is searching for an answer to many problems, divisions, hostilities that are ever growing. If only they understood that every solution to those problems was actually found in the real body of Christ. We stand here united as one body and united with many other bodies as the corporate body of Christ. As I pick up with verse 17, I want you to have your brothers in the one association in mind. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off. And peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit. Somebody say one spirit. One spirit. To the Father. Saints, we are bound together by sharing one spirit. We drink of that one spirit together. There are not many spirits. There is one spirit of holiness and one Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens. Amen, Carlos. But you are fellow citizens. Amen, Ibrahim. With the saints and members of the household of God. Saints, we take great pride, great joy in the physical differences and nationalities and ethnic groups in this room. Because in Christ, we are one household. See, international boundaries do not hold a man of God who is in obedience to the word of God. See, this household is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. It's almost as if you've been learning about a government that is based on 12 foundations on a city. Well, here Paul is saying that our household, our current fellowship is founded upon this. 21 continues, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Now, saints in the natural, a building doesn't grow. In the natural, a building is a static, dead entity. But when Christ builds something, it's alive, it's living, it's active, and it is intended to grow. In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Saints, there is one Spirit that we all drink from. You have learned much about how it is a wellspring of life. It is one that is founded by Jesus Christ, the son of David. And it was built upon by his 12 apostles. This is the structure we've inherited. This is the life that we live. We have searched together and returned to the ancient paths, the original foundation. It is now our job to build upon that foundation, to expand it, to cause it to grow, to continue to acquaint ourselves with the original cornerstone convictions in our ever-changing times. We have been brought near for an express purpose. Our express purpose is to build up the structure, to expand the holy temple, and to enlarge the holy family of God. Church, we are one spirit. Everybody say one spirit. spirit. We are one body. Say one body. One body. And say one kingdom. One kingdom. This is what we are, church. Let's visit another letter. To a battle-hardened, well-trained, and active early church known as Colossae. Picking up in the first chapter of the book of Colossians as the Apostle Paul addresses them regarding their newfound status, their newfound purpose, and the military equipment with which they have been given. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 9. It says this, For this reason, since the day we heard about you, We have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Even as we're getting going here in this passage, 
Aren't you glad that the word of God shows you? These men are getting a revelation, and what are they doing? Immediately beginning to pray for others. From when we heard about you, we began to pray for you. We started worrying about you. We started giving for you. We started sacrificing for you. See, this is the heart of a father in the faith. His prayer is for their equipping. Come on now, church. I know you love the Lord. I know this is what he's speaking to us. Imagine a room full of people. Imagine an entire body that's not praying about their own needs, but is more concerned with the needs that their brothers have. This is what Paul is demonstrating here because he understands that the kingdom is advanced by young men on the front lines. His prayer is not for himself. It is for those that he has heard about. Paul himself understood experientially what it is like to drink of the one spirit to enroll his labors into the believing body of Messiah and to obtain and implement the battle plan for the kingdom of God. And now, somebody say now. Now. Now Paul is standing in the gap. He's standing in the breach for sons who are also soldiers and they are soldiers and sons of his own that they might find the same empowerment that Paul has received. He is praying for them to get exactly and even more than what he has himself. See, church, the bottom line is that when you find the well of eternal life, you can't help but invite others and pray for them that they may drink of the same empowerment that you've received. Saints, it's necessary that we address a cultural norm. Since the time that you were born, the world around you, your parents, your government, they've all been telling you time and time again, you don't have what you need. That the reality is, You are somehow a victim and someone needs to do something for you to succeed. It's not true. Saints, we want to tell you in this house, we are not speaking about a theoretical situation. We're speaking to a body who does have the wellspring of life. You are the source of living water. You are those who have what the world needs. You are not at a disadvantage. You have the very cure for cancer and it's called the Bible at work inside of you. You are those who should intercede for the rest because you have all knowledge in Christ. All of you can recall from our history and past sermons that the man who is filled with the Spirit is never at a disadvantage. Hallelujah. That applies to everybody in this room who is filled with the Holy Ghost. Let's continue in verse 10. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way. Bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. Hallelujah. Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience. And joyfully giving thanks to the Father. Now pay attention. Some important points are coming up in our passage. Who has qualified you? Who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of life? Come on. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Hallelujah. So we got some celebration to do this morning. So we got some celebration to do this morning. Today, we want to celebrate the kingdom that we are standing in currently. 
Today we want to celebrate the qualification that we have in Christ Jesus. And to be clear by we, I mean we as a body all have received that qualification. He has qualified you by bringing you into his kingdom. Today, we will not be filled with lengthy word studies. Nope. But you should know that Strong's number, 1849, for dominion, as in the dominion you were once under while in sin, is simply being under the forcible control of darkness. Dominion is being under the forcible control of darkness. It has to do with a right to force being applied to you. The right of, for force to be applied to you. So we want to tell you today that a verdict has been issued in your favor. And it has been given just as Luke 16, 16 says. You have been brought into the kingdom of God. And now, everybody say now. 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 Now you have the right to apply force against the enemy and his will. Come on. You are standing in the place of advantage. Amen. To couple with this, the word for kingdom in the passage that we just read is Strong's number 932. And it has to do with royal authority, royal force being applied. Like that of a great king. Saints, I can see in a few of your eyes, you immediately got it when we gave you a rough definition of dominion. But we're going to explain this a little further. You have been removed from the position of the one being forced upon by darkness. Yeah, I can see in a few fighters in the room. You were previously the recipient of force, but Christ has changed your status. And brought you into the royal force of the kingdom of God. You yourself are now the one applying the force instead of receiving it. You're applying your force to the enemy who once bound you with his dominion. But you're now applying royal force to him with the authority of the great king himself backing you. See, we were brought out from the dominion of darkness. So that we may see him filled with knowledge. See the world around us filled with good fruit and works in Christ Jesus. We were put on this earth for them. To rescue those that are currently still within the dominion of darkness. Saints, we're trying to tell you this morning. You actually do have the answers. You have royal power, royal status, and royal authority. We have been rescued so that we might then go apply force and fight for their qualification. We are all drinking from the same spring of men of old. As Justin Treister said from Hebrews 11 earlier, we are participating in this same process. It is our time, now enrolled in the body of Christ, to fight for the inclusion of lost souls, so that they might be reconciled into Christ as well. It is now our time to fight for the advancement of the kingdom priorities in every area by applying royal force to the dominion of darkness. So we say yes this morning. Yes, we are a church militant. We are militant about saving the lost and about advancing our king's royal agenda. 
Come on, can you feel the liberation to know that you are not the one that's having the force applied, but you are the forceful men advancing this kingdom agenda, this royal kingdom agenda. See, you are no longer subject to the forces of darkness, but instead you're now operating in the royal authority of the kingdom of God. See, Paul did so much for us. He wrote to another church during the firefight of their lives with words of solace and encouragement. Turn with us to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and say Operation Sledgehammer as you turn. Operation Sledgehammer. Oh, I think you can do better than that. Say Operation Sledgehammer. Operation Sledgehammer. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 5. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Now, before I go on, I want to make sure that you got that. We're not preaching ourselves. We're only preaching Jesus Christ as Lord. And you want to know what else we're preaching? We're preaching and. Somebody say and. And. Jesus Christ is Lord and ourselves as your servants for the very sake of the royal authority that Jesus Christ has given us. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, Come on. made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the very face of Christ. Yeah. See, we are looking at something here that is so important. We have freedom from darkness, and that is always associated with becoming the doulos, that Greek word for slaves of Christ, for the sake of our brothers. We are willingly desiring and choosing to become slaves for Christ that others might advance. We are slaves. Golly, church. We are slaves for the sake of the brotherhood. And it is our greatest honor to do so. We are fighting for the advancement of the kingdom of light by fighting for our brothers, even as their servants. Look at what verse 7 goes on to say. With that in mind. But we have this treasure. Somebody say, I have a treasure. I have a treasure. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side. Can somebody say amen to that? Amen. Come on now. That, in fact, is the point, isn't it? That we are earthen vessels that something supernatural, a holy spring, is flowing from. Let me just put it plainly to you. Something is wrong if you are not hard-pressed. you got to check yourself because you're about to wreck yourself if things are not being hard-pressed. You can rest assured by your Christian commendations of the fact that your life is not easy should be the greatest affirmation. Hallelujah! It should be a great affirmation that you are a son, that you are a soldier, that you are at war for the kingdom of your father, which is the very kingdom of light itself. Can anybody uh, grasp the fact that we are, in fact, weak earthen vessels? Yes! But we contain holy springs. We contain something supernatural. It is a power that is of royal origins that are in these jars of clay. Man, those royal origins produce in you royal authority and royal force. The apostle Paul goes on in verse 10 to describe what this warfare is like. Verse 10, we always, always carry around in our body the death of Jesus. Do we ever get a day off? No. Ever get a break? No. Don't want one. 
No, it is our joy and honor to always carry around in our body the death of Jesus. Why? So that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. Hallelujah. For we who are alive are always being given over to death. Raise your hand if you're alive today. Oh, very good. Okay, this applies to you. Still standing. Being given over to death for Jesus' sake. So that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Come on. That transference, the reason why you walk in his death. It is written, verse 13, I believe, therefore I have spoken. With that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore we speak. So let's put some things together. As a church, we've already learned together that from John chapter 4 and John chapter 7, the spirit our faith stems from is equated to springs of living water. Do you guys remember that connection that we've been making? Well, today we want to share with you the price of permanence, the payment in blood that will be required to purchase men for God just in the same manner as our great king did in Revelation chapter 5. Our endeavor is one of a greater magnitude than many before us, and it will take labors, prayers, and generations to accomplish it. Saints, the opening session of the conference, you all heard the cost of bringing the gospel to a few islands filled with Stone Age men. Do you remember that? Here in this one collective body, we are aimed at bringing the gospel to continents, specifically continents where the gospel once reigned and has since been so diminished as to be non-existent. Namely, because the faith of the church gave way to things like death by apathy, death by self-preservation, Death by demonic religions. In this room and among our brotherhood in the one association, we are currently staring down the barrel of no less than 70 war fronts and a dire need of 12 springs per war front. To aid in your understanding of what Pastor Judah just said, 70, the number representing the nations of the world and the 12 springs that we find in Exodus 15, 27. We're saying that in each of the 70, there must be 12 springs. And to aid in your understanding of how great an entrustment that has been given to us, we would like to compare it to a pivotal moment in history. In 1939, World War II broke out between the Allied nations and the Axis powers. At the commencement of the war, it became clear that a daring act of valor would be required to win. An act of valor that would cost a great deal in time, planning, and investment by the means of men's blood. This investment has become known as D-Day, and it was officially called Operation Overwatch. But by the men who planned the attack for the years prior to it, it was privately called Operation Sledgehammer. Say Operation Sledgehammer. Operation Sledgehammer. Operation Sledgehammer began June 6th of 1944, and we'd like to share a few facts about this momentous event, beginning with a photo that was taken after the battle at a front called Omaha Beach, to give you an idea of the scale that is involved. We're going to let you take a look at that for just a minute. This is obviously at low tide, but you see battleships, you see tanks, you see armament, you see men 
of all kinds. You even see uh, hot air balloons and different things in the air to help provide cover. But you see the scale of what is going on. And by the way, this is only one small section of the front captured by a multinational coalition bent upon bringing tyranny to an end and liberating the entirety of Europe. Saints, on a practical note, it is always taken. Somebody say always. 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 It is always taken multinational efforts of brothers to push back the dominion of darkness and advance the kingdom of light. By the way, since we're talking about the dominion of darkness, you should never trust voting software that's called Dominion. I'm just saying. That's a great word. <laughs> I'm just saying. That's a great word. So you guys, I'm sure, are somewhat familiar with D-Day. Have you seen some of our movies of the past 15 or 20 years, Saving Private Ryan, a few others? It encaptures this event, and it was momentous. Let's go to our next slide. We got some, some pointed elements we want to highlight to you. So D-Day occurred on June 6, 1944, and it was the very turning point of World War II. But here's a, a fact that most people don't know. This singular day that was the turning point of the war, it took five years of planning. Five years. So at the beginning of World War II, what was happening in Germany and surrounding countries and involving Britain, the plan was immediately starting to develop in 1939 and took five years to then be enacted and fulfilled. We're gonna work through these bullets with you for just a minute. Our third one on the screen is that 156,000 ground troops that were comprised of the US, the UK, and Canada landed on this beach. They were supported by many other nations that made it possible. These 156,000 brave men showed up to secure this beachhead. This is where we get frogmen, or some of you may know them by Navy SEALs. Men who were willing to land into the ocean, crawl themselves on a beach, go over a wall behind enemy lines, and make a way for their brothers. See, they did more than just kill terrorists off the coast of Africa. They were actually invented to help eliminate positions so that their brothers could advance. Yeah. All of this was for 50 miles of beach in Normandy, France. After the victory that was found here at D-Day, you, it becomes a staging area, and that really is the picture, is what a typical day as a staging area began to look like. And you see on the slide, it became a staging area for 2.5 million men. For 500,000 vehicles. Our, our picture here is showing you a few dozen vehicles. We're talking about 500,000 vehicles. Hear this next one. And listen to this. Eight billion pounds of supplies that were used and utilized here on the beaches of Normandy. So if you're anything like me, conceptualizing just one billion is rather difficult. We're talking about eight billion. So I want to connect two things together. I have in my hand, well, it is a bottle of water. When full, you can read on the label that it's 16 ounces. 16 ounces is one pound right? So this is one pound. There are currently 7.9, or was round up, 8 billion people on the planet right now. 
8 billion. So everyone that is living and existing on earth at this moment, if they had one bottle of water, put that all together, and that is the total weight of supplies that was delivered for D-Day. While you're thinking about that, remember that this ground was taken by 156,000 men so that this kind of supplies, troops, and armament could go through. This pivotal time in human history led to an allied victory over the Nazi Germany within one year. From this moment, the entire polarity of the war shifted, and what was a, uh, a very questionable victory for the allied forces becomes a certainty. And less than a year later, 11 months, Germany is signing an unconditional surrender to the Allied forces. And by the way, 156,000 becomes a staging area with 8 billion pounds of, of, of supplies that are there. All of this was done to secure five. Somebody say five. Five. Five war fronts within only 50 miles of coastline. Five beachheads in 50 miles took five years of planning, took billions. It took all kind of things that was there. And what you're seeing is a very strategic but a really a very small area to be conquered. Yeah. So saints, years of planning, 8 billion pounds of supplies in order to see the tide turn in favor of freedom and liberty. These first brave men faced the fury of German-made machine guns in order to secure a starting point for their brothers who numbered in the millions after their initial heroic sacrifice. The battle was only for five fronts, meaning five footholds for their brothers to walk atop their dead bodies and march on until their brothers reached the goal. So look, consider for a moment that the men who had vision for this battle knew that the vast majority of those who would first set foot on the beach would be cut down, never to see their families again. But they sent them anyway. Consider men who first donned the gunfire, that at best they would die well by giving their brothers a few inches of ground to start from. Making a path by shielding their friends with their own bodies as gunfire ripped through their very own flesh. Saints, great sacrifice was required to turn the tide of this war. And great deliverances were wrought through those who loved not their lives so much as to shrink from death. Saints, our great king, well, he's entrusted us. And by us, I mean he's entrusted you and me with 70 war fronts that we must raise up 12 springs in each, 12 springs apiece. Yeah. I want you to hear me. That's 840 springs. Consider this another way. If it cost John G. Payton, his wife and his son, if it cost John G. Payton nearly every friend he had, to see salvation brought to a few sparsely populated islands. What do you think this vision will cost us? Years of planning? Well, we're not talking about five years. We're talking about generational planning like that of Abraham. 
Scores of men that will die to secure a beginning, a starting point for the brothers. So that generations of men, women, and children will be able to follow. Billions of pounds of sacrificially obtained supplies. And most importantly, a wanton disregard for one's own personal safety. As we apply royal force to the dominion of darkness and advance the kingdom of light. Saints, before we move on, I want to look at some of you in the eyes and I know the callings that are on your life. Don't discount the amount of time, preparation, and sacrifice it takes to bring about real change. We're talking about planting springs in every biblical nation of the world and bringing the gospel back to Jerusalem. You just heard that these five war fronts took five years to plan in this much sacrifice. See, no investment in our teams, in our families, in our relationships right now is too much. We've been given so much as a church, haven't we? I'm going to read to you from John 15, and I want you to listen closely. John 15 and verse 15, it says, I no longer call you servants because the servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go. Somebody say go. Go. And bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. This is my commandment, that you love each other. Our Father has made known to us his plans. Because we're not slaves. Instead, we are sons who choose to partner in our Father's work. Can anybody else, like what your pastors are feeling right now, can you feel the gravity of what's been bestowed upon us? These things must take place for the return of Christ. They must take place. We must bring the gospel to 70 nations, securing beachheads for 12 springs in each nation so that the son of David might reign in Jerusalem. He has chosen to reveal his plan to us. Us, of all people, he has revealed it to us. Isn't that an honor? Isn't that a blessing? Look, we spend a large part of of our walk in Christ trying to hear and discern uh, what the Father's will is so we can be obedient to it. You guys are putting into practice the way of life that is cultivating and preparing not only what you need today, but what your generations need for tomorrow. Isn't it true that we're all wanting and listening for God to give us that next great thing that's in the distance, that's on the horizon? And it's a privilege to be able to receive that. We're longing for it. But there's another truth that happens. When you're hearing about these 70 nations and the 12 springs and multiplied, that's 840 springs to be on that map in that region of a swan. Is anyone else having trouble breathing when you begin to conceptualize that? Does it feel like you're at the deep end of the pool? I'm talking about like an Olympic-sized pool, 20 feet deep. And you're at the bottom and that weight is upon your chest. You can't breathe. Or how about something a little more real in today? Whenever the Lord says, hey, I want you to operate in teams. I want you to work like a unified body. 
sharing with each other your lives, involved in the decisions that are to be made. Does it cause that same effect? Well, let's just clear something up. When I hear this about God's global plan for this church and this one association, what is the glaring problem with this plan? What was that? I can't do it. The glaring problem is me. I am the problem. The plan is not the problem. God's will, God's destiny, what he has been working at for millennia to bring to this church. That's not the problem. I'm the problem. I am the problem because I give way to the thought that I can't. I give way to the notion that I am not fit for this task is too great for me. Lord, why are you putting me in this position that's going to highlight my weaknesses and my insecurities? I am destined to fail because of your plan. That's what's happening inside of me. Look, we're going to be real transparent with you, and I'm going to make eye contact with a few of you on purpose. You don't have a problem believing that the One Association will accomplish these things. You have a problem believing that he will do it through you. That feeling of being trapped, like you've been promoted beyond your ability. Like, oh crap, everybody's looking at me. They put me in this position and I am incapable of actually performing what I've been promoted to. Saints, that trapped feeling is something we want to interact with. I assure you, you are not the only one who wrestles with the comparisons between what this church is and what you personally believe you are capable of doing. Look, to be clear, we all can recognize the call of God. And with fear and trembling, we should wrestle through the difference between our own internal state and where this body is heading. But it is also the same God who causes us to wrestle with that feeling of being trapped that is capable of bringing us to completion in what we start. Maybe you've considered it like we have in these past few days. Comparisons between the standard of the word that's actually lived out in what you're seeing around you, in your brothers and the mighty men of God that you're seeing, and your own inward thoughts. You're able to go, man, has anybody come to grips with the fact that you can say things that aren't as fully lived out in your own life as they should be? You know what you should be saying, but you also know, and there's this trapped feeling that you have on the inside of you that says, you know you're not living that. Those comparisons of what the Word says, the immovable, elevated standard of the Word, and what I actually think and what I actually feel on the inside. Man, there are great things that are going on around me. I'm the problem here. I need to get away. I need to get away. I'm feeling trapped, and I can't do anything about it. Hey, how about the own, your own estimation of your fruitfulness in comparison with the usefulness in this great plan? I just don't see what I can actually contribute to what God is going to accomplish through LCM and the One Association. I mean, I can be fruitful in this area, but to put me in the usefulness that God is requiring for this plan, man, you're setting a trap for me. 
you're, you're, you're digging a hole. It's a scandalon. You're trying to show how really unfruitful I am. Oh, man, God's fixing it in this house tonight. Hey, the women in this room should be uh, uh, saying amen better than you are. Has there ever been a mom in this house that went, all I'm doing is taking care of kids? That's all I'm doing. Look at my fruitfulness. How can this be taking a beachhead front in a foreign nation? I'm just changing diapers. And you feel trapped because you're trying to compare what you feel your fruitfulness is versus what the grand call of God is upon this entire group. Look, I grew up in this house, so I'm unashamed of you seeing my progress. I firmly believe that what Pastor just said about the women is true. But can I be frank with you? In the last two weeks, I have said, I feel like what I'm already doing is futile. Look, that might be a small, effeminate voice inside of a man crying that, that the call of God cannot be accomplished. But I assure you, it's not just the women who wrestle with the feeling that your work won't produce anything. I'm looking at some grandfathers and fathers in the room that are wrestling with that as you speak, but you're sitting next to sons that are better men than I've ever seen. Come on. I want to read to you 2 Corinthians 1, verse 8. This is something that is special. Everybody just give me your eyes for a second. I know you've read this before, but you need to understand what a sledgehammer moment in Paul's life this is. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly beyond, or utterly burdened beyond our strength. Before you keep reading, just pause on that. Paul didn't say that I felt like I was burdened beyond my strength. He said we were utterly burdened beyond our strength. You ever wrestle between the reality of what you see around you and the faith that you know you possess? That we despaired of life itself. Paul begins his second letter to Corinth by displaying his utter inadequacy for the task. My God, have I echoed those words, unfortunately with far less actual pressure. At the risk of pausing too long on this singular verse, we want to interact with the Peshat of it for a moment. Paul said he despaired of life itself. Think about what that actually means for a minute. He no longer wanted to live. To live and complete the call, he was so crushed and in despair about his own ability to do anything useful, fruitful, or productive in the kingdom of God. He thought it was just better that he die right now. We're not always as honest as the Apostle Paul is. The more the Lord shares with us, it has a way of igniting carnal fears. And I'll be the first to display that. You begin to think to yourself. I mean, we've often cried out, Lord, give us great revelations. Share with us your vision, your prophets. Lord, you do nothing without sharing your will to the prophets. But then we forget the price that the prophets paid for those things. And it actually was like fire burning in the bones of Jeremiah all of the time. See, God has revealed something special to us. And when we're considering the life of the Apostle Paul, by most, he's considered to be the very best of us all. 
But consider what it cost him to later write a verse that we have already read to you this morning. But now knowing what produced it. Understanding 2 Corinthians 1 as the backdrop. Listen to what we've already read to you from 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Church, we want to let you know that there's an aspect of Operation Sledgehammer that we didn't share with you yet. It was called the Ghost Army. For months prior to the powerful attack, the Allies had to engage in a kind of weakness-based warfare. They had presented a tent-like temporary force made up of hundreds of inflated army tanks, as in balloons that looked like tanks, tank-sized balloons and planes and soldiers to confuse and distract the enemy from the real power that they had in their arsenal. For months prior to the arrival of a great and powerful army general, Patton, not the general of the faith, John G. Payton, but General George S. Patton, he had to put himself in a weak and an indefensible position. One of the greatest military leaders ever was in charge of inflatable tanks. And he hated it. He hated every (laughs) second of it. But he was in charge of this weakness-based campaign to show a ghost army. It was a weak and indefensible position because he was feigning this weakness so that the enemy did not understand the real plan. Uh, But the supreme commander of the heavens has a better plan than we could ever estimate. Saints, this is so much like the great general Yahweh Sabaoth. The one who chooses to use weak and temporary vessels like us to bring about his great plan. The enemy is always tempted into thinking that he can prevail by crushing us, but does not realize that it is actually a trap for him. We are those that are pressed, but not crushed. We are those that are persecuted, but not abandoned. In the case of the allied powers, they feigned a false attack with weak and useless hardware. Realize that an inflatable tank can't shoot back? With a BB gun, you could actually deflate it. In our case, we are really in weak, or we really are weak and useless hardware. We're in it. It's called our mortal flesh. I mean, just pinch yourself if you don't believe that. We really are not capable of what Christ has shared with us. But, like the apostle pointed out, that is the goal earthen vessels that are not special other than the royal power that inhabits them we're going to re-engage with second corinthians 1 verse 8 i want you to hear as we read verse 8 the trapped feeling that paul is in and what begins to develop for we do not want you to be unaware brothers of the affliction we experienced in asia for we were so Utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. I'm trapped and I just want to die. Indeed, we felt that we received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Wow. 
he knew something about phantom warfare, what it was to be an earthen vessel filled with supernatural power. Verse 10 says he delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also might help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessings granted us through the prayers of many. Saints, I want to tell you that Exodus 15 says that the Lord, well, he is a warrior and that is his name. Yahweh, ever the military strategist that he is, has arranged that earthen vessels would hold all of his power and be raised again and again. Ephesians 3 puts it this way. His intent was that now through the church, those earthen vessels, those weak inflatable planes, well, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms through them. Verse 11 says, according to his eternal or everlasting purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Saints, wrestle with this for a moment. Christ's eternal purpose has been to lay a trap. But can I tell you this morning, that trap is not for you. You are not the one who is trapped. No, that trap, that feeling of I am being promoted beyond my potential, that is a trap for the enemy. So that when he looks at you, he will think you can never accomplish the kingdom's purposes. He will look at you and think, oh, I can dominate him in darkness again. So that when the enemy looks at you, he thinks he will prevail. But can I tell you that when he does that, that is when the enemy truly begins to fall. It begins to fall through Christ's resurrection power again and again. That royal power that will cause you to triumph by his supernatural work. Look in John G. Payton's case. This is what the trap in triumph looked like. John G. Payton wrote this in his biography. Stunned by that dreadful loss and entering upon this field of labor to which the Lord himself had so evidently led me. My reason seemed for a time almost to give way. The Lord did indeed lead John G. Payton to this especially weak moment. He was an earthen vessel intended to trap the enemy into believing that he could be overcome. Mm. To the world at large, it looked like John was the one trapped, trapped on an island, quite literally without a boat and inability to leave. But hear me, saints, in truth, it was the beginning of his most costly and victorious triumph in the cross of Christ. Church, John G. Payton goes on to say, the ever merciful Lord sustained me. And that spot became my sacred and much frequented shrine during all the following months and years when I labored on for the salvation of the savage islanders amidst difficulties, dangers and death. Now, we want to make sure that you get what John G. Payton is referencing. He is referencing the loss of his 19-year-old wife and their newborn son, and he is at their graveside. The symbol and the sign of the weakness is where he is at, but he is finding strength in the Lord. This great loss was always a possibility, and John knew that, but he went anyway. He went to the island of cannibals knowing what it might cost him. Upon landing there, Lost to sickness or cannibalism was a very real possibility, but he stayed anyway. At the destruction of their earthen vessels, the motivation to run, 
to back up, to flee was very real. You might even say that John G. Payton despaired of life itself. The weakness of John and his family, their utter inability to bring about the plan of God. I'm going to say that again. The weakness of John G. Payton and his family, their utter inability to bring about the plan of God was combined with obedience. And despite these facts, it became a trap that was set and sprung on the dominion of darkness. The trap wasn't for John and his family. It was for the enemy's kingdom to be destroyed, that dominion of darkness to be conquered. They applied great royal force to these islands by willingly walking into the enemy's trap in the same way that Christ did. And just like Christ, their temporary demise was only a triumph of the greatest magnitude. Their grave site became a site purchasing, not the demise of John, but instead the transformation. Somebody say transformation. Transformation. And the resurrection of John himself. After paying that great cost, he could now turn back. Instead, he, could, he drew closer and closer to Christ. In the process, he became more like his Savior. You see, church, we are not trapped. We are positioned to triumph through the process of ongoing transformation. Somebody say, I'm not trapped. I'm not trapped. I'm just going to triumph. I'm just going to triumph. See, the trap of the enemy is designed to move us towards transformation. That transformation, when you cry out to your father, actually produces triumph over the dominion of darkness. Whosoever Tana turns to the Lord and is one for Christ... Men in after days will find the memory of that spot still green. What spot is he writing about, saints? He's writing about the grave that he dug with his own hands, where he put his 19-year-old wife and newborn son in the ground. Why is it still green? Because it was the spot of transformation inside of him. It's where he realized he wasn't trapped. The dominion of darkness on that island was trapped with him. Where with ceaseless prayers and tears, I claimed that land for God in which I had buried my dead with faith and hope. See, our earthen vessels look like inflatables. We die. We perish. But where we are buried with faith and hope, we are raised in the greatest of resurrection power. Saints, I want to tell you this morning, the sight of our greatest weakness appears to be the most tempting of traps for the enemy. But in the end, it will serve to be our collective triumph. The weakness experienced at that graveside was the catalyst for the salvation of an entire people group. You see, we are Operation Sledgehammer, church. We are a ghost army. We are those who are weak and intent like vessels that appear as if they could break at any moment. But we're actually filled with royal power. We have been brought into a kingdom, a new kingdom, and we are no longer subject to the dominion of darkness. It's time that we begin to calculate differently in this house. We have to calculate differently than the world does. You are qualified in Christ. Because your great king has promised to keep qualifying you. It wasn't a one-time experience. Today we believe that our great king is seeking to transform us in this house, and it is our triumph. Come on, church, you need to be reminded that this church started with a handful and dreams that at the time seemed absolutely impossible. 
I mean, we've told you about it, you've heard, but you should consider in 2015, the one association started with an absolutely ragtag group of men. Ragtag. Ragtag, but they had basketfuls of hope. See, and while all of this is beautiful and true, it is incumbent upon us to honestly confess before you today that even at the start of the one association that had seven ragtag men that helped start it in 2015, and you were a part of 700 men and women just a few weeks ago, from seven to 700 in just seven years. But we have to be honest with you and tell you that we were believing for things that were too small. Yeah, honest confession. We did not envision this. What we're standing in now feels so supernaturally beyond anything that we could have hoped for. And yet there is still more on the horizon. What was impossible because of our own narrow-minded assessment of our own capacity has been obliterated by Christ time and time and time again. And you're experiencing that. See, we needed transformation to believe beyond what we could see. We are those who must apply royal force to the dominion of darkness by walking out royal power in these earthen vessels. To get a really good glimpse of that, turn with us to Zechariah 2. We're going to make sure that this gets down inside of us today. Say Operation Sledgehammer as you turn. Operation Operation Sledgehammer. Are we the only ones that need transformation to see what's beyond us in the future? No. I'm glad we're a family. We're in this together. You guys still awake? You guys still awake? Zechariah 2, verse 3. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward. And another angel came forward to meet him and said to him, Run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as a village without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord. And I will be the glory in her midst. So the chapter begins with a young man holding a measuring line. That measuring line was to determine the boundaries of Jerusalem. So in response to this, an angel commands another angel to run and say to that young man that God's ability to transform his chosen city is far beyond the abilities of man to actually measure. God's plan is larger than the length of our own estimation. His plan has always been immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine. Saints, I was one of those seven ragtag beginnings of the One Association. And I can say that I was working within my own estimation of what God would do. And every successive year that we get together as a group of One Association churches my mind is blown even further. My measuring line cannot contain the level of what God wants to accomplish. This is exactly what God has been dealing with me as of recent. This passage has been burning in my soul, addressing me to throw away my own estimations of what God will accomplish and to build 
uh, what he would build, what he would triumphantly possess through me, through my family, through this church, and the global family of the One Association. He, he sets his sights on the things that uh, will be part of our future, and that's the establishment of 12 springs in each of the 70 nations. And he has chosen us to be part of his ghost army. We are part of that ghost army. In fact, we're going to rename it right now as it applies to us. We are part of his holy ghost army. We are his spirit-filled sledgehammer. But there's something we got to wrestle with. The confounding aspect of his plan is that we often appear to be the one being hammered. We're called to be the sledgehammer. But from the outside, it looks like we're the one getting hammered. But the reality is that this only paves the way for our transformation and the triumph of the cross over the dominion of darkness. Our ongoing transformation is for the purpose of preparing us for present and future triumph and battles. Hallelujah. What is conquered in your day, what is conquered in your hour, then becomes a staging point for millions of those who will follow in your footsteps. The very footsteps that are paved by the shedding of your own blood, by the sacrifice of your own future, so that the very place of your death would be an evergreen sign and symbol of what is to come in resurrection power. Somebody say, I'm not trapped. I'm not trapped. I'll be transformed. I'll be transformed. Then triumph. Then triumph. Look, we're fully aware that for the majority of you, what Pastor Matthew just said about millions who will follow in your footsteps, either sounded like an impossibility to you or you thought he was speaking in hyperbole. Today, we are all starting with us on this stage as your pastors asking for transformation. Amen. The gospel has always been multiplied by the fire and glory of God and not the competency of its carriers. Zechariah is making reference to the first exodus when he's describing the days to come. Israel was not competent then for the task, but Adonai was and always will be Amen. just as he will be in the future. If you were there with us in a garage or a living room in 2015, you might understand how where we are today felt no less supernatural than saying millions that will follow in your footsteps. If we continue to reason by the means of our own right arm what our righteous king might accomplish, we will forever be limiting his working. I don't mean the working of his overall plan, but instead just in our own lives. So we want to tell you today, run and tell that young man. Tom Powell, do you hear me? I'm speaking to you. I'm telling you, young man, the city that God has placed you in will be one without walls. Don't calculate by carnal means, but be willing to put, be put in a trap so that Christ's kingdom light might triumph. Amen. Can you understand the way that God is expanding our faith under tension today? Yeah. Zechariah 2 came to us some months back, and our father is bringing it up again because he is not yet done expanding our territory. Amen. Expanding what we began by the Spirit of God and bringing it to completion by the Spirit of God. Can somebody hear me when I say we need a Benaiah spirit in this house? Yeah. A spirit that no longer looks at the lion in the pit saying, I'll be trapped. But instead says, 
My God, that's an opportunity for transformation and for triumph. Let's go. Thank you, Jesus, for bringing this about. Come on, because of that transformation and triumph, Benaiah looked at it and says, I'm not trapped by the lion. The lion is trapped in this pit with me. That's what we are raising up as men of God who understand the transformation daily that's needed so that there may be real triumph. Now, look, we understand conceptually that this is all very agreeable to this group of people. It's not the first time you've heard us, but it is something that is needed in our day and time. Because the practice of this can feel like you're actually in purgatory. (laughs) The insanity of me saying to you that the lion... One man in the back was honest. One, Chris. The insanity of saying... The lion is the one trapped in the pit with me. Yes, amen. Except when you're actually in a pit with a lion. Ah! Praise God that there is a passage in Mark 9 that deals exactly with this. Mark chapter 9, verse 23. Somebody say Operation Sledgehammer. Operation Operation Sledgehammer. If you can, says Jesus... Everything is possible for the one who believes. That is not hyperbole. He actually meant what he said. This is the Messiah. He says that everything is possible for the one who believes. May our response be like this boy's father. Verse 24. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Um, but I need you to help me overcome. Oh, come on. That's it. I I need transformation in this process, and I'm just going to admit it. I'm going to be the first to admit, I do believe what you're saying. The problem is not what I'm believing. The problem is where my unbelief is. Help me. The truth is, is that all things that are truly born of God are beyond your normal rationale. Come on. Are, Are you hearing us? Are you being honest with yourself? All things that are truly born of God are beyond your normal rationale. To the same end, all true expansion, all true growth, all forward progress in the kingdom is beyond our and your current measure of faith. It's beyond what you can do. That's kind of the point. Is it demands of us ongoing transformation. Because we all grow under tension. Yep. You do not grow when things are all easy and good. Your times of best best growth are because of the tension of the difficulties that you're in. We're always going to grow under tension. Ask us how we know this. What Adonai has presented our collective body, our tribes, all of the churches, is beyond our capacity. Let's just own that fully forthright right this second. The answer is not now, nor will it ever be to lower the standard, though. It's beyond us, so how can we do it? So let's lower that standard so we feel like we can accomplish it. It's never to denigrate those who are upholding the standard. The answer is to cry out for transformation in our unbelief. Then, then what do you do? You cry out for transformation, then you begin to act faithfully before you feel anything different. Hallelujah. Gone are the days where this group of people can decide to wait till you feel like faith is rising up within you. We're going to cry out for transformation and then begin to act full of faith and obedience with what God has already stated. 
James 2.18 says, I will show you my faith by what I do. Amen. Faith is resurrected through cheerful. Somebody say cheerful. Cheerful. And obedient action. But it's not resurrected. Oh, this is good. When we're talking about your faith being resurrected, do you realize it's not resurrected to the previous state that it was? Oh, come on now. When you go through this process, you're not resurrected to what you were before. You're actually resurrected and raised into something that is imperishable. You are raised into a faith that is ever-expanding, ever-growing, ever-deepening, just like the walls of Jerusalem. Somebody say hallelujah. Hallelujah. So in light of that, we are throwing away our reasonable measure. The very limitations that we put on what God can resurrect and expand. Praise God. We're throwing away the one that we can carnally calculate with in the strength of our own right arm. Yeah. The measure of God is a city without walls. One that is, a, that is surrounded with fire. It is filled with glory. And the solution can never be in our hearts to lower the bar. But instead, it must be a cry to your father that says, raise me up to it, daddy. I can't reach it. Help me in my stature of faith. Our good father hears those cries for transformation, and he will never overlook or forsake those words because they're spoken out of reverent fear and admiration for God Almighty. Saints, are you hearing us this morning? When your faith is crushed, it is not resurrected to where it was. It is resurrected to a more glorified and perfected state. You want faith to move mountains, well then your faith will have to be exercised. We cannot lower the bar, but instead cry out to our Father to raise us up to it. What these pastors have said is so good. And we understand that you are readily agreeing with it. Because we all desire to grow in our faith. But what we want to do is share with you how poignant our desperate cry for ongoing transformation really must be. We want to pick up in the prophet Malachi's writings during a period of revival and rebuilding. One that is much like the church in this room is participating in. Starting in Malachi 1 verse 6. It says this, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. Throughout the book of Malachi, you get this exchange The prophet is saying one thing, and then you're hearing the response of the people. I think it's their internal response because the prophet knows them well. But you say, how have we despised your name? See, here the prophet Malachi is setting up for a very poignant and powerful revelation for God's people. And for you and me here in this room today. He starts by using two very fundamental relationships that all people are supposed to understand. A father-son relationship and a master-servant relationship. We've been speaking about these throughout our time today. Even in the natural, sons are to honor their fathers. Servants are to honor their masters. But here the great sovereign and ruler of the universe is saying that there is no honor towards him and no fear from his people. What's worse is that these very sayings are directed towards the priests, the very ones who have been charged with honoring and fearing God the most. It is the priests who are despising the name of the Lord. Now, if we are a room full of people 
who are becoming priests, who are walking in a holy and a royal priesthood. This has everything to do with us. Not only the men standing on the stage, but every man and woman in this room. You have to engage with this. And their internal response may be like yours. How have we despised him? What does despising the Lord look like when you're in the office of a priest? Let's continue in verse 7. By offering polluted food on my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? So the despising of the name of God is displayed in the fact that they have given themselves wholesale over to accepting things that are not in agreement with the standard that God has. In their hearts, they have cried, lessen the standard, lower the bar. Don't call me up to what is higher and the heavenly standard. And in doing so, they cease to cry out, Abba, Father, raise us up. They cease to cry out, we need transformation. Instead, what they're crying out for is accommodation when it should have been transformation. Church, are you catching this? These are priests. What is the job of a priest is to receive the offerings from the people and offer them unto God. It is in receiving and accepting things that are not according to the standard that these men have begun to despise the actual name of the Lord. We're going to help you to grasp this in the next few minutes here. What about when you accept into your own life thoughts of disqualification? You accept them in and you're asking God to accommodate you by lowering the standard. I can't do it. I've been disqualified. You forget all the verses that are talking to you about being chosen, that it is in your weakness that you cry out for transformation. And you have accepted the lie. You accepted a sick and a lame offering from those around you and even in your own thoughts. Saints, when you're wrestling with this, this looks like accepting offerings in your own family, in your own heart that you know were polluted. You know we're blind, lame, or sickly. And you're crying out for a change of circumstances rather than transformation because you believe you are the one that is trapped instead of the enemy. These are the areas that we, that I, shrink back from the cost of the call because I just don't think it'll produce what was promised. I have doubts about paying that sacrifice that really it's just not going to produce that much fruit. This person is always going to be that way. How is that not accepting a polluted offering? Maybe the most damning things are the thoughts that we accept where we just believe it's vain or futile to serve God. As Malachi goes on to say, what is the profit of keeping his charge and walking in his ways? See, in this room, we're going to cease to despise the name of God by expecting less than a supernatural work. This is not a message that we respond to by wallowing in disqualification. Colossians already told you, you are qualified. Yeah. Yeah. So don't accept anything less than the fruitfulness that Christ has called you to, called your future to, called those around you. We are going to call out for supernatural transformation. 
we say no more carnal calculations in this house. No more carnal calculations in this house, church. We're not going to punish ourselves with the lowering of expectations any longer. As we were going through that, that danger of accepting things that are just not true, God is going to liberate us from this today. The solution is not for the standard to be lowered. The solution is not that you are actually living in vain, but rather that you cry out for his transformation, for his power to be seen in you again and again. We're not going to lower our expectations of what Adonai can actually do through us for them. We'll, we'll, risk, we'll risk it all, being called insane, madmen, dreamers, and do it joyfully. Somebody say joyfully. Because our God will help us in our unbelief. God, we believe. Help us where we don't believe. Help us where we're believing those things that are actually showing that we're despising your name. We are not going to despise his name in this house. We're going to ask him, and he's going to transform us in our unbelief. We are not going to shy away. We are going to stand up. We are going to rise up. We're going to cry out for transformation, and we're going to walk in triumph in this house. Who in here has the heart to cry out for God to help them in their unbelief? Oh, yeah. Who has that desire to do the impossible what God has called you to? I want you to do something, saints. I want you to set your Bibles aside. I want you to stand to your feet now. I want to say men of LCM. Men of the One Association, families, today is the day that you take your stand. Today is the day that you dream big and expect God to do the impossible through you. Today is the day to pray fervently, to labor with diligence, and believe in the triumph that Christ can work through the trap of difficulty and turn it into a triumph for generations to come after you. As you stand here, I want to give you a charge and an encouragement. We stand as your fathers in the faith. And fathers look at their sons and daughters and say, you can. You must and you can. And what I'm going to do, I'm going to echo the words of the supreme commander of allied forces. It was a letter that he wrote to those men who would journey to the shores of Normandy on D-Day. Listen to what he says, and it's what we are saying to you. Sailors, soldiers, and airmen of the Allied Expeditionary Force, you are about to embark upon the Great Crusade, toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hope and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. In company with our brave allies and brothers-in-arms on other fronts, you will bring about the destruction of the German war machine, the elimination of Nazi tyranny over the oppressed peoples of Europe, and security for ourselves in a free world. Your task will not be an easy one. Your enemy is well-trained, well-equipped, and battle-hardened. He will fight savagely. But this is the year 1944. We would say, but this is the year 2022. 
Much has happened since the Nazi triumphs of 1940 to 41. United Nations have inflicted upon the Germans great defeats in open battle, man to man. Our air offensive has seriously reduced their strength in the air and their capacity to wage war on the ground. Our home fronts have given us overwhelming superiority in weapons and munitions of war and placed at our disposal great reserves of trained fighting men. The tide has turned. Church, we say to you this morning, the tide has turned. Look around you and see what God has done. The letter concludes with the free men of the world are marching together to victory. I have full confidence in your courage, devotion to duty, and skill in battle. We will accept nothing less than full victory. What is our charge? What is our call this morning? What are we constantly aiming at? We will accept nothing less than full victory. We drink of the one spirit that is Christ in this house. We are one body in this house. And we are a part of one royal kingdom. We say we will no longer accept anything other than the fact you are qualified. We will not fight to be disqualified. We will not linger in disqualification. You are qualified and we will accept nothing less. You are full in the knowledge of Christ and growing every day and we will accept no other reality in this house. You are of the kingdom of light in this house. And there is no other reality that we will accept. This is a house of trained fighting men. And there are other houses that are a part of the same body. And we will join together to bring down the dominion of darkness. We will bring it to destruction battle after battle. We will not be too ashamed to dream of real, full victory in Christ. 840 war fronts is not too much for us. It's not too much for us because of the God that we serve. We will take sober acknowledgement of the cost. Sober assessment of how far Christ has already brought us to this point. And we will summon the willingness to rush into the fray once more. Well over our heads, trusting our God the entire time. It is not us that is trapped. It's the enemy that is trapped. We will not fail. Today is a day for declarations and our action will follow. We will not accept anything other than Christ, the son of David, as Lord over all the earth and enthroned in Jerusalem. We will bring the gospel back to where it started and where it came to us from. Us and our generations will be happy to pay the cost in planning and time and the blood of our own lives. This will take generations, but we are men who are signs of things to come. We will make a way for the millions to cross over our bodies. Today we say to the disbelief, to the fear, to the concern of being inadequate in the house of God. Father, Daddy, Abba, help us and our unbelief. And we trust all the while that you will make us stronger. That you will heal us. That you will restore us. And that is the enemy that will be trampled in that trap. We will triumph. We want to finish with you in Malachi 4 while you're on your feet. 
Malachi 4 and verse 2 says, but for you who fear my name. Do we have some men and women in this house who fear the name of the Lord? The sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Church, he has risen. He is risen. And he will continue to rise in our hearts and in our lives, giving us triumph through, tri through transformation. Listen to what the next verse says. And you shall tread down the wicked. The trap is not set for you. It is set for the wicked. For they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. Does that sound like much of a battle on your end? They're already made into ash and they are under your feet. I can't help but think of what Paul is saying in Romans. The God of peace will soon crush Satan right underneath your feet. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him. Do you see how Malachi is calling back to Moses, to the law? He's saying, remember, this is the same faith. This is the same type of planning that I gave to Abraham and has existed in Moses and has come all the way to you. Verse five, behold, I will send Elijah. We get Moses, the law and the prophet spoken of here. The prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. You know, Elijah, the one who thought he was alone, but was not. The one who despaired of life itself, but was resurrected. The one who could see mountains torn apart and whirlwinds happen, but learned how to raise up sons. This very same Elijah. Look at verse 6. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree. Church, we are confident in what God is saying to us. No more floundering in low expectations, especially as it relates to your own family. We're going to stand up and ask our mighty Father to help us believe and to actually win the war that is before us. What was required at Operation Sledgehammer was incredible. What was required of John G. Payton was great. But what is required of us is larger and more expensive in every way. And the same God who holds the hearts of kings in his hands, he'll see our great war brought to completion because it is, in fact, his war and we are his sons and soldiers. Saints, while we have you standing here, we want to go ahead and just project a few things for you before we tell you how we're going to close. In this house, we're going to be expanding boundaries. We started out this year understanding that we were on a timetable, that God was shifting nations around for the benefit of his plan, and that we would play our part in it, starting by setting a table. We've been learning to raise up officers, to work in teams. Saints, this is the faith of Abraham. It's the man who is childless and alone, but God says to him, look up at the stars, so shall your offspring be, numbering the millions. What has begun here will be brought to completion. What started in 2015 in a living room in the One Association, well, that story, it'll come to its conclusion when we have total victory. In this house, we are one spirit. We are one body. And we are one kingdom. And we've brought, been brought near to advance the cause of that kingdom. We'd like to ask Elder Charlie, Elder Bosch, Elder Johnny, if you're in here, with uh, your wives to come up to the front. James teaches us that elders should lay hands 
on those who are weak in faith. Too much of our time we've tried to spend fixing things by either hiding from our Father instead of asking Him to bring us up, or weeping at His feet being unwilling to look at the hands that wish to lift us up. In this house, if you are sitting here realizing your faith has been weak, not in the sense that you would like it to grow, that is all of us. But right now you are recognizing the call of God is passing you by, not because he disqualified you, but because you keep disqualifying yourself. And you want the sickness of weak faith to be healed. With the lights on and everyone standing, I'm asking you to come to the elders now. If you've been excluding yourself from the call of God, today we cry, Abba, Father. For the rest of us that are in the room, before we begin to pray. We're asking you to honestly, soberly, evaluate your own investment in this battle plan. If you've been thinking to yourself that it is futile and it has been overwhelming you. I'm asking you to come to the left side of the room where Pastor Nick Aragina and Pastor Parsons will be waiting for you. The rest of you who are in your seats begin to contemplate the letter to Colossians that we began with. Paul's earnest prayer was for the increase of knowledge and salvation, of growing fruitfulness in them. Now is not the time to pray for yourself if you're standing where you are. Now is the time to pray for your brothers who have been qualified by Christ, that they would begin to see what Christ has already set them in. Begin to raise your hands. Father, we thank you for this time to operate as a body. Lord, we pray that your strength and your power would fill your people. Lord, transform them. Help them overcome their unbelief, our unbelief, my unbelief. Lord, and may your strength and power turn that trap into a triumph. Lord, maybe we're going to see testimonies of victories, testimony of healings, testimony of greater perspective and trust in your future of our families, the future of our churches. Lord, we say raise up those 840 springs. Lord, we say establish those 70 nations that each have those 12 springs. Lord, let this carry on for generations, and may we impart to our children what is required for their triumphs.